All right, well, welcome everybody to the show this week, having a conversation about progressive versus evangelical views of Jesus and Christianity. And my guest today, Dr. Randall Rouser, is agreed to come and join me for this conversation to hopefully model a friendly conversation, a friendly dialogue to bring clarity on this issue. We're going to see some points maybe where we agree, some points where possibly we disagree, but all of this hopefully helping you think well about this issue. And so uh, I emailed Randall a little bit a while ago uh, just saying, hey, I picked up your book. I've been reading it. He recently came out with the book, Progressive Christians Love Jesus Too. And so I was reading it and I said, hey, um, I'm reading this. Uh, I kind of disagree with the main premise uh, in a sense, and we'll talk about that. But I think you raise a lot of really good questions. And now I have a lot of questions for you. And so would you be willing to come on my show and have a conversation about that? And you agreed. So Randall, thank you for coming on and having this conversation. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Always happy to talk to people who disagree. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, it's what I was thinking is like, I would much rather talk to people who, um, I'd rather talk to people I disagree with than talk about them. But I think often that that really does help shape us. You know, it's for those following my channel, you know, they, they know like I'm a t high school teacher and a lot of my students are not Christians and I'm a Bible teacher. And so, you know, having them kind of challenge and push back uh, makes me be more careful in the language I use, as well as I think kind of helps refine arguments. And, and I think it's just overall a good thing to kind of have those conversations uh, with people who are not, you know, always on our side, because then it can get easy to just kind of get in that I guess that sounding board and just easy responses and everyone goes, yeah, good job. And it's not necessarily the best argument. Yeah. The, you know, the, the word argue, the, the etymological root for it is to shine forth. So I love that because people today tend to think of argue as meaning combat, right? Combat, right. fighting, right? And, and uh, antipathy or hostility toward other people. Well, in its best form, to argue is hopefully a way to have reasoned, charitable discourse and let the truth shine through. And so I think that's what we're about today. Yeah, absolutely. And I, as you, you say this kind of similar thing in your book, it's not about just pitting sides and you're my enemy and I'm going to go get you. It's how do we have a good conversation and, and a dialogue. And so hopefully that's what we're going to model here. So so as we kind of jump in, I, I think... Um, Maybe kind of just start kind of where you're coming from. Uh, you are a professor of systematic theology um, and you live up in Canada, right? Alberta, is that correct? Yeah. Okay, perfect. And so um, kind of what I, I guess kind of has brought you to this point maybe uh, of, of writing this book, Progressive Christians Love Jesus Too. Why did you see this as something that uh, is important to kind of maybe uh, put your words out there into the world? Like, hey, I have this kind of position I want to share and, and help people understand this side of the conversation. Right. So um, I've I've been uh, teaching in a seminary here in, in Canada for 18 years. One of the things I do is write books on the side, as many professors do. Right. And I wasn't planning to write this book. But uh, I know a couple of years ago, Alyssa Childers uh, published a book called Another Gospel, where she argues that progressive Christianity is another gospel and another religion. Uh, and she's become very well known for, for speaking on that topic. Several other Leading evangelical Christians have been doing similar things. Michael Kruger, a well-known theologian, wrote a book, The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity, also argues that progressive Christianity is like another gospel. Sean McDowell's been promoting that view, a very popular YouTuber named Mike Winger. So there's a big conversation about that. Um, from my perspective, however, I think that, in fact, progressive Christians are a spectrum, just like evangelical Christians are. 
there are orthodox progressive Christians, just as there are orthodox evangelicals, and there are unorthodox progressives, just like there are unorthodox evangelicals. And these black and white categories, like saying, well, that whole group is another religion, are simply not helpful. Um, they, they bring dissension and, and, frankly, hostility and misunderstanding within the body of Christ. And so I just felt compelled this year to write a book to kind of speak out against that trend. And the product was Progressive Christians Love Jesus Too. Okay, wonderful. Now, as you mentioned there, and uh, and kind of talking about um, this kind of broad spectrum, I, I think that in kind of the the time I'd spent reading your work, as well as, you know, Sean McDowell was a professor of mine, Mike Winger's a friend of mine, and so uh, I, I've read and heard a lot of what they uh, have to say. I've watched your video critique of Sean's conversation with Michael Kruger, as well as I watched their original conversation, and um, I think a lot of this comes down to maybe how we define progressive Christianity. So if it is this kind of broad spectrum, uh, how are you maybe defining it in your work? Kind of what definition would you um, give to this kind of title, progressive Christianity? Well, first of all, we have to appreciate that the term progressive Christianity is defined differently by different people, just yeah. like the term Christian is defined differently by different people. <laughs> right. So when, when I begin to point out that the semantic range or the possible meanings of the term are diverse, I get sometimes get pushback. Like people say, well, you know, make it simple. Why, what, is it, what do these people believe? And again, it's complicated, just like the term Christian or the term evangelical. So we have to recognize that at the outset. Now, progressive Christian, it has become popular as a term in the last five years, maybe, right. maybe a little longer, 10 years. In some cases, uh, some of the people who use that term uh, come out of what is more traditionally called historic liberalism or mainline Protestantism. And so there is, for example, is a website called progressivechristianity.org, which is associated with a now deceased liberal Episcopalian bishop named John Shelby Spong. Uh, and so they are sort of one expression of a group of people calling themselves progressive Christians. Now, if you look at the website that I mentioned, progressivechristianity.org, they list eight points that they say are representative of progressive Christianity. And honestly, I mean, I think at least two of those points are fundamentally unorthodox, including a denial of the incarnation of Jesus, I think, in point yeah. two, treating Jesus as just one avatar, or, you know, one messenger of God or something among right. others. And so I think that's deeply problematic. Um, another expression or use of the term progressive Christian, however, and this is the one I'm more interested in, is when it's used by people who are coming out of a conservative evangelical background and are beginning to question some aspects of their theological upbringing within evangelicalism or fundamentalism. And they will have um, begun to, to use this term progressive Christianity in the last few years. Now, people from that sort of demographic They've used several different terms over the years. So if you go back 20 years or more, uh, in the late 90s, I began hearing the term post-evangelical. And then I heard people like Brian McLaren talking about a new kind of Christian. And then you heard the term emerging, emerging and emergent church. Mm -hmm. I think the contemporary use of progressive Christianity among this population is really just a further permutation or a development from those earlier terms. So within that context, these are people who are beginning to question aspects of conservative fundamentalist Christianity. And that can include things sort of understanding, how do you understand the nature of biblical inspiration and authority, inerrancy? How do you understand how Christianity relates to science or something like something like evolution? How do you understand the nature of the atonement or judgment in the afterlife or whether God's truth can be found in other religions 
or whether Jesus can save people apart from a cognitive confession of Jesus, or how do you understand sexual ethics, including issues like transgender and LGBT, other LGBT issues. And probably that's where there's the most heat yeah. uh, in among contemporary people. And also discussing um, relation, gender relations is another big one. Yeah. So I think that's a very quick overview. And there's a, there's a whole, you could say a smorgasbord of uh, contentious theological issues that people are wrestling with under that umbrella. Yeah. So would you say like, again, because I'm trying, I'm kind of maybe observing this from the outside, right? I don't consider myself a scholar in progressive Christianity. I haven't read a lot of the works that other people are referring to. And I'm kind of seeing the conversation happening. And it kind of seems like um, really these definitions are important because, you know, one person will say, well, this progressive Christian falls outside of Christianity. And then it kind of, we, we then say, well, over here, there's this progressive Christian that falls inside of Christianity. And so like, is it possible that we're talking about two different groups here? Um, or, you know, what is the, I guess my, my question is like, we have this term that's kind of seems like this umbrella term that can include so many people. It almost becomes not helpful. Is that, is that safe to say? I don't know. Well, I would just, I would want to frame that like this to say any concerns you would have about the term progressive Christian, you should have those same concerns about the term evangelical Christian. Right. Absolutely. Uh, so, for example, Kenneth Copeland and other Word of Faith teachers are generally considered, certainly by sociologists, to be counted among evangelical Christians. Right. And yet I think somebody like Kenneth Copeland and Word of Faith theology is fundamentally unorthodox. I don't think that uh, Gordon Fee, a well-known New Testament scholar, was overstating the case when he referred to the disease of the health and wealth gospel. I think it's fundamentally inimical to Orthodox Christianity, yet they're considered evangelicals under that umbrella. Uh, or you could have people like John MacArthur, who I would have a lot of concerns about the orthodoxy of his theology, in particular when he appeals to the Hamitic myth to, or the Hamitic narrative, to this Hamitic story of the origin of races to understand the relationship between people of African descent and people of Indo-European descent. So that would be very concerning to me. Or you'd have people, uh, oneness Pentecostals, mm -hmm. uh, who are denied the doctrine of the Trinity, would be considered to be evangelical under that umbrella, and yet I think would be rejecting a historic doctrine. Somebody like T.D. Jakes coming out of that oneness tradition, he's right. a little bit ambiguous. Uh, I think about tw in 2012, T.D. Jakes came out with this fundamental a qualified endorsement of the Trinity, <laughs> but it still seems to me from that endorsement that he's not accepting that God is eternally three distinct, equally divine persons. Right. So you have these these problems that you want to we could consider with the with progressives have the same problems with evangelicals. Absolutely, and that's where I think that you kind of raise these questions, and and I think that you know, in my hope is that people are consistent, right? If we're going to criticize one side for one thing, we need to criticize another side for another thing, and and you raise that same question. Question, not just evangelical Christianity, but like Christian in 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 general is a very broad term, right? I just I just got done with a week of ministry in Utah where where Mormons consider themselves Christian. And I get very offended if you say you're not Christian, right? And so I'm not going to come up and just say you're not a Christian. But sometimes they've asked me, like, do you think I'm a Christian? I say, I don't think you are. But they, they say, no, we are Christian because we follow Jesus. And so there's definitely this label of I'm an evangelical Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a progressive Christian that often... Um, can be very confusing if we don't kind of dig beneath the surface a little bit and kind of see what it is. And so I'm kind of curious, based on that, like I would consider like a, a Mormon not a Christian, even though they would consider themselves one because they follow Jesus. Um, and um, 
and Jesus is in the name of their church, as they will often say. But I think they get Jesus fundamentally wrong. And so I don't think that they're following the same Jesus. Um, I don't know if you would agree or disagree on the kind of the Mormon question, but I see kind of a similarity there of, of needing to dig below the surface and figure out what are the beliefs that the person holds, not just what is the label that they attach themselves to, if that makes sense. I don't want to get into the weeds on Mormonism, but right. I mean, one thing to keep in mind is is that there there are at least these two basic Mormon churches. There's the I think the Mormon Church of Independence, Missouri, if if I'm not incorrect, which which actually are monotheists and they are much closer to Orthodox Christianity. But the Mormonism that most people know is the Mormonism of Utah, right. uh, the centered in Salt Lake City, and that is is a Mormonism that is I think polytheist, that the fundamental doctrine of it is that as God is man, or as man is, God once was, as right. God is man may become. In other words, the promise that if you follow the dictates of this religion, you can become equal to God the Father, in, in essence, another deity. And that, to my mind, is a fundamentally inconsistent with Orthodox Christianity. So, and I actually, I think Mormons historically recognize that, that they were a restorationist movement right. that believed there was a mass apostasy after the death of the last apostles. And it was only in the late 1970s, I think, that they really began to try to go from emphasizing contrast and distinction to emphasizing continuity right. with historic Christianity, thereby creating, I think, all sorts of confusion. Yeah. But I mean, the, the more fundamental issue here is how do you kind of decide who's in and who's out? And that's a complicated question, to be sure. Well, if we can, can we jump to that complicated question? And so, again, like as I'm trying to frame here and I think is good is not because just because someone says I'm a progressive Christian, you have to dig below the surface, right? Kind of figure out. So, like, how would you say what is a Christian? Like what what would make someone a Christian versus not a Christian? If you can ask that question. One thing I would think, well, I'm going to say, first of all, I am a professor. I'm going to give a um an answer that is hopefully in some sense simple and hopefully in some sense complicated. Somebody recently posted online that I gave, because I gave a complicated answer, I'm not a Christian. So, I mean, it, <laughs> I guess it depends who you, you, who you ask. The simple answer, I mean, Karl Barth, right? One of the leading theologians of the 20th century, famous Swiss Protestant theologian, was famously asked on a tour in America, uh, what is the most fundamental theological or most profound theological truth you've ever learned? And he said, Jesus loves me this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So at the heart of Christianity is Jesus, right? And a recognition that God right. was in Christ re reconciling the world to himself. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That's where you begin. That's where you work out from. Uh, now, uh, and, so, and so you can say that that's the foundation and, and the heart. Now, the next thing we want to recognize is that there is a, a one thing we want to keep in mind is there's a distinction here that we want to keep in mind between question of salvation and a question of church boundaries. So the question of salvation is who's ultimately saved by Jesus. Uh, the question of church boundaries is what are the core Orthodox confessions and practices that are required to be a member of this community such that the, the denial of them would exclude one from the community or from full participation in the yeah. community. And those are important distinctions. The first one is salvation. The second one is church or ecclesiology. So uh, when we ask who's a Christian, we could be asking who's saved, or we could be asking who should be allowed in the church and who shouldn't be allowed in the church. 
Yeah. And, and so you always have to be thinking that. Yeah. And I definitely want to get to that. The first question, right, of who is saved, because I know that's kind of the last chapter in your book that you that you kind of discuss on what is it? What do you have to believe, so to speak, uh, to be saved? And I definitely want to get there. Uh, let's maybe kind of start with that first one. If someone says, you know, I'm a Christian, um, that can mean a lot of different things. Uh, what would kind of make them part of the Christian group in your mind? Yeah, so um, I would think a confession of the Lordship of Christ, right? That's where you'd start. Now, people often will uh, will go to Romans 10.9 and sort of say, well, Paul says in Romans 10.9 that if you uh, believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And right. they say that's a sufficient condition. Uh, this is where I have to say maybe it's a little bit more complicated than that because a Mormon, as we just talked about, will say that. So does it follow that if you say Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, that in and of itself is sufficient. Because what if you have all these sorts of other beliefs? Let's say you believe that there are many gods and you yourself will become a god. Are you still a Christian because you've met the standard of Romans 10.9, but you have all these other false beliefs? That's where it gets more complicated. And, and so you have to, what you have to keep in mind is that it's not just about the lone ranger Christian, but it's about when you confess Jesus, you're entering a particular community. And so it's about entering an Orthodox Christian community. Uh, so that it's Romans 10, 9 means something different when a Mormon confesses it within a Mormon temple or tabernacle versus when a Christian confesses it in a Christian church. Uh, and so that leads me to the next issue, which I think is an important measuring rod or plumb line here, which is uh, the role of the historic Christian creeds. In particular, I would say the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Uh, these are the Apostles' Creed was earliest form was in the mid 200s. Or, I mean, sort of 100, so 150 or so, and then the reached final form in about 400 AD. And the uh, Nicene Creed from 381, those are the two most universal creeds. I think those are really helpful plumb lines to provide a bigger framework theologically in to, uh, to understand the confession of Romans 10.9. So I think that's the direction you would want to go in as you begin to ask, well, what does it mean to be a part of this Orthodox Christian community? Right. So if someone um, says, look, as you just stated, right, Romans 10, 9, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. And someone says, I believe in Jesus. Um, how important is it to understand, okay, but who is Jesus that you are professing faith in? Like, you know, because at the beginning of your book, you kind of talk about this difference. And this is where I had a lot of questions as well um, about uh, the core of Christianity, right? Is it doctrine or is it a relationship? And um, and you talk about like, no, it, you make the case it's a relationship uh, versus doctrine and and say, you know, it's not about the things you know about your wife. Right. It's a relationship with your wife, w with your wife. Uh, can, maybe you unpack that a little bit and then I had a few questions, I guess, to follow up uh, with you on that kind of point. But what do you kind of mean between doctrine versus relationship? How do those go together or? Separate. Yeah, it's not. I mean, I am a systematic theologian. So, right. I mean, doctrine is my bread and butter. If there's no yeah. doctrine, I'm out of work and I don't have a paycheck. Not that it's about <laughs> a paycheck, but that's not insignificant. But I mean, the, the foundation is relationship. When when I became a Christian, I came, I mean, I was born into a Pentecostal conversionist tradition. And what that means is that my parents believed, you know, that you, had, you had to know the day that you were saved and you had to make this cognitive confession on that day. And so th this is part of a broader evangelical tradition. So they they presented the gospel to me when I was four or five years old, told me I had to choose to follow either God or the devil. And so I decided after afternoon of reflection that I would follow God because everything I'd heard about Satan was pretty bad. What what was my understanding of doctrine on that summer afternoon 
in like 1978 or 77. I, I'm, I think it was very, very crude. Right? <laughs> Uh, not crude in the sense of vulgar, but crude in the sense right. of undeveloped. Yeah. And, um, but that's when I would say my relationship, there was a significant moment that my relationship really developed. And over the next several decades, now fast forward to 2022, my theology, my doctrine has grown in all sorts of leaps and bounds. I think usually for better, sometimes for worse, right? Life isn't always about acquiring new beliefs, but sometimes acquiring false beliefs. Um, but nonetheless, the relationship is that thing which is maintaining the acquisition of doctrines through which I acquire new beliefs about God and how I relate to God. And so it's the relationship which is the most fundamental thing. Okay, so yeah, so with that, and I, and I agree, right, it starts out as that relationship. And I guess where my question then becomes is, is um, and again, my, my trip last week to Salt Lake City kind of helped kind of, I think, bring this to mind as well, is is to say, like, if I have a relationship with Jesus, um who that Jesus is, is important, right? Because if I said, look, I, I know Jesus and I believe in Jesus for, you know, I've confessed in Jesus and I believe that Jesus is going to save me from my sins, but the Jesus I'm talking about lives two doors down from me. Um, clearly you would say, well, yeah, you have a relationship with Jesus, but that Jesus is not going to save you, right? That you have a very different Jesus. And so I guess it would be like, um, how, um, I don't know how to necessarily say this, but like how important then do doctrines come in as far as who this Jesus is, that you have a relationship with. And obviously as a small child, I think there's this distinction of what you have to maybe believe to be saved is very minor, right? I think children can have a very limited idea, but as you grow older and start to develop more beliefs and, and have more ideas, then if those ideas start to go against, right? Uh, what, what the Bible teaches or what scripture shows us and reveals to us who God is and Jesus is, then that can lead you away. Where if I start believing in a Jesus that is a created being, uh, that is not God, um, that sort of thing, you'd be like, okay, well, you have the wrong Jesus. You may have a relationship with Jesus, but not the right one. Would you, would you agree with that point? Well, I would say Jesus was created, right? He was the incarnate son. So well, I, I eternally God that became here. incarnate, but not, not just well, a created being yeah. like, as in like the I, Mormon I, yeah, yeah, church would say. Yeah. Yeah. I know I'm, 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 I'm being nitpicky here just to be irritating. <laughs> um, no, but, um, but one thing I'll note is that we kind of segued back into a salvation versus church boundaries question. I mean, they, they constantly go back into one another, right? I would just ask this as, as a question is to say, do we have to pass a theology exam in order to get through the gates of St. Peter, as it were? And if so, what are the questions that we have to get right if, if we're talking a, about salvation? Yes, this is a good question. This kind of goes to your last chapter, right, uh, of the book. Um, so, again, I think that there's what a difference. Well, like, what, not to put you on the spot, but what do yeah, you think? No. Like, no, this is fine. This yeah, is a conversation. You, have, you can ask questions yeah. back. It's not just me putting you on the spot. Um, I would agree with a sense of, of what you, of, of the Norm Geisler position that you talk about at the end of your book, where I think that what scripture teaches is, is a recognition uh, of who we are, of who God is, that we are sinners, right? I think that the, the basic gospel message, that I am a sinner, that I cannot save myself, that God has sent Jesus Christ to die for me, for my sins, that I may be reconciled to him. And so uh, there's a belief, I have to believe in Jesus uh, that is required and, and who Jesus is and what he has done for me. And so I think that that is a very simple belief. And you mentioned this uh, in the last chapter of your book of, of how could Geisler kind of forget the Trinity? Like this is a core Christian doctrine. Is this an oversight? And I would say, no, I don't think that's an oversight. I would say that there's a difference between a simple understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, who we are, and how he has saved us. 
But then I think as you grow further in your theological knowledge, if you begin to deny the Trinity or you deny the incarnation of Jesus or you deny the divinity of Jesus, now that puts you outside the realm of Christianity. And so I think that there's a simple thing of, of being saved. Uh, but then as you grow, if you start denying things, then that's where it becomes important. So I think there's a difference between core Christian doctrines um, that as you grow in knowledge, you need to affirm or reject uh, to kind of be in the bounds of Christianity, so to speak, versus a simple faith that can save, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, there, there is a, a, you've made a distinction here uh, between things you have to confess, it seems, versus things that you don't necessarily have to confess, but you can't deny. And so it right. seemed like you were saying uh, your Geisler list is he gives you things you have to confess or believe. Uh, but the Trinity is not among those. The Trinity is just something that you cannot deny. Is, is that your position then? Yeah, I don't think that you have to have an understanding, a working understanding of the Trinity that um, how there are three in one uh, in order to be saved. But I think that, as you mentioned before, with like a T.D. Jakes or whatever, if think if you grow up and you take a Mormon view that there are either three gods, uh, separate beings, or that Jesus is not God and you deny the Trinity, I think that would then put you outside the realm of what is biblical. Being outside the realm of what is biblical is, is one thing. Uh, being uh, unsaved is another thing. Being unable to participate in the full life of a church of the church because of your theology is another issue again. Right. So, I mean, um, again, these are all just distinct issues. They're all important issues and Christians don't agree on them. Uh, you know, and another thing here, which um, you, you, I think you acknowledged that you were talking about belief developing over time. This is another huge question is. Uh, when I was four or five years old and I prayed my sinner's prayer, that again, that was a very protean, crude, limited theology. It developed over the years. Uh, at what point was I now accountable to have certain beliefs and not to have cognitively denied other beliefs like the Trinity? I had to believe the incarnation. I didn't, I couldn't deny the Trinity. At what point did those obligations begin to obtain? Is it, is it with respect to the acquisition of a particular level of IQ a particular age. Um, you know, Christians talk often in a very facile or simplistic way about an age of accountability. Right. But the, the issue is accountability. I talk about this in another one of my books, What's So Confusing About Grace, is like, like we live in, in societies where we, we are legal minors and then we become adults overnight, right, when we have our birthday. So if <laughs> yeah. you commit a murder, uh, when, when bef the day before you're a legal adult, you... I mean, you might be tried as an adult, but otherwise you'll you'll go through the juvenile system. But if you commit that same act a day later, you now have a whole level, different level of culpability. The problem with that kind of simple picture is that moral culpability is acquired gradually over time as people grow in their knowledge and their wisdom. We know, for example, that the brains of human beings do not really achieve maturity until their mid-20s, right? It is not until that time that adult human beings can fully anticipate consequences and have sort of the adult fully developed level of impulse control. And so one of the things I want to ask is, does God judge an 18-year-old or a 13-year-old based upon their cognitive development and their life experience differently than he would judge a 25-year-old who has a fully developed brain, can anticipate consequences and think, think through issues with more sophistication? Um, those are the those are not illegitimate questions. And so yeah. I would just suggest that 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 should offer us a, a healthy degree of caution if we want to make sort of magisterial statements about who's in or who's out, uh, whether it be in the kingdom of God or in the church. 
Yeah. Yeah. Would you? Yeah. And I would agree with that. I think that we need to have caution and we have to think through this and we have to be careful. But would you not kind of agree that the scripture, while there is maybe some gray area in the middle, that there are ends that are true that we can at least affirm? Well, so I have a chapter in the book about epistemic humility. Right. Uh, and one of the points I make in the book is that Alyssa Childers, in in her book, Another Gospel, she accuses leading progressive Christians of denying the existence of objective truth. I go back to the passages that she interacts with, and I look at additional passages as well. And I believe I show categorically that those individuals are not uh, denying objective truth, nor are they denying that we can know objective truth to some degree. What they are issuing a caution about is our ability to have sort of a God's eye point of view on objective truth. you know, a sort of detached view from nowhere, uh, where we can be certain about things and know with confidence that we cannot possibly be wrong. In other words, they're arguing for epistemic humility, or as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that we know darkly as through a glass. So what I would want to say is the same thing, is that we can, I mean, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, uh, and he is Lord. I believe I can know that. But I also believe that I'm a fallible human being, and so I can have humility even as I confess core Christian doctrine. Yeah, so um, I guess where, and I want to come back to that kind of relativism claim as well, I have it here on the notes, is is I guess where like I want to stand is like, there is a, a clear right. I have a seven-month-old son, right? And and he hit me on the face yesterday. I'm not going to get mad at him for hitting me on the face, right? And and there is a clear understanding, like he ha- is not controlling his arms. He's not aware, like, I'm mad at you, dad. I'm going to punch you in the face, right? And then you would say, like, okay, clearly, like, if an 18-year-old, walk- my 18-year-old son walks up to me uh, in 18 years and punches me in the face, um, now he is culpable for that. And so I think then there's a question that you're kind of asking is, like, okay, but where does he become culpable, Right. And there is a kind of a weird line, maybe uh, we can't draw specifically on what exact age do I now get him in trouble for this? And you, you try to kind of judge as a parent. Right. I assume, you know, based on kind of what you see and you, you, you tell them something and they think about it and then still do it. It's like, OK, there seems to be more of an act of disobedience here. Um, but even though there may be a gray area is exactly when that culpability begins, it seems clear that at least it's not at six months and it is at 18. Right. And so in a sense, like there's some humility in exactly where it is, but we can still kind of maybe draw the boundaries in a sense is, I guess, where I'm coming from. I I mean, I don't disagree with that. I would want to offer a little more nuance in it, however. Uh, Two things I would want to say. The first thing is if you're 18 year old, uh, you startle him and he turns around quickly and smacks you in the face by accident. Right. (laughs) Then, then, Then that's not an issue because there was no intentionality there. Right. Uh, now if he's two and, and he intentionally smacks you. Well, he is culpable, but he's right. culpable as a two-year-old, which I think is going to be different than a 12-year-old or an 18-year-old. Yeah. So I, I don't think that culpability is a simple binary, either or, but rather is a gradation moving into greater degrees of culpability. And likewise, we are responsible to greater degrees or lesser degrees. Paul talks about this, I think, in Romans 2, when he talks about people being judged for the light that they've been given, whether Gentile uh, or Jew, right? The Gentile doesn't have the law, but they have a law written on the hearts to which they're culpable. But I think it's very reasonable to think that a two-year-old has a, a perception of that law, which is different than a 12-year-old or an 18-year-old. 
Yeah. And I, would you say a similar example to kind of agree to that point would be the like Jesus in Luke chapter 10 talking about like, you know, greater is a punishment going to be for you than for these people. Right. And there's different culpability that these people are going to have or the different levels of punishment, so to speak, that they're going to receive in hell based on the revelation that they've received. Yeah. And I mean, I think also also there is, is the is the idea of having a particular role. Uh, and in that role, leading people into untruth or leading people astray. And then you're now culpable for that as well. I certainly think that that's consistent with that overall paradigm. Okay. So, um, and, and this whole conversation, I would just want to say is, it's not an evangelical versus progressive thing. I mean, these are issues that Christians across a spectrum are all wrestling with. Right. Um, so kind of going back to the end of that final chapter, right, you kind of asked me kind of where I kind of stand on what it takes to be saved. And I said, you know, I kind of agree with the Geisler list that you critique in the book, uh, that there are things that Swellman would have to say uh, and, and confess and believe if they have the ability to do so. Obviously, uh, I don't know the, the exact line in which that takes place. And so there is some humility of like, hey, God knows, right? God, God understands them and knows where they're coming from and how much he's revealed to them and kind of where they're at. And um, I don't know exactly. Uh, but there seems to be a, a distinction in, in the Bible versus those who are going to be saved and those who are going to be not, uh, who are not going to be saved. Um, where would you kind of fall into that category uh, as far as um, what does it take to be saved? How do we know uh, or can we know who's going to heaven, who is not um, and, and who what's who salvation applies to? So, again, I would I would if I would issue caution uh, about because I think that you already have sort of modified your position, and I think rightly so, when you've recognized, for example, well, children aren't required to to confess Geisler's list in order to be saved. I assume if if a two or three year old dies tragically, that they're not going to go straight to hell on your view because they didn't confess these things. Uh, another thing that another thing to keep in mind is. People can also have false views, let's say, based upon the witness of the church, which is often very flawed. So to take an extreme, but nonetheless, I think important example, let's say you have a 12-year-old Jewish, Jewish girl in Auschwitz who rejects Christianity right before she, she's sent to the gas chamber. The Christianity that she rejects is the Christianity of the Third Reich. That, and that's the only thing she's ever known. Would you say with confidence that she's going to hell because she rejected Geisler's uh, seven or eight doctrines? I think, again, this would be a great moment to have epistemic humility uh, for myself. And so I think you could go through a long list of similar examples and begin to say, you know what, I don't think that we can speak with confidence about who's in and who's out with respect to doctrinal confessions. What that would mean is that I would be a hopeful inclusivist saying that I'm not willing to say make definitive statements on which doctrines must be confessed by which individuals in particular places in order to be saved by God in Christ. Yeah. So what would you then do with passages? Um, you know, and I get that there's a humility as, as far as knowing exactly the heart of the person, but what would you do then with passages like in Matthew 10, 33, where Jesus says, you know, if you deny me before man, I'll deny you before the father, where, where scripture seems to create this kind of, uh, this binary which says, you know, like if you're, not with me, you're against me. If you're not gathering, you're scattering. If you, you know are either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God, um, that there seems to be this binary there. Is it, it's there, but we just can't know it. Well, how about a big one? The sheep and the goats, right? Right. You're sheep or you're a goat. Wheat, or, but, wheat and tares. Yeah. What happens though? Let's say wheat and tares. The tares are darnel. Darnel looks very much like wheat. 
but it's very difficult to distinguish. And that's one of the points is, uh, is that you have to allow the wheat and the darnel to grow together in the field because you can't really distinguish them. Uh, sheep, it turns out, according to Matthew 25, sometimes they seem to look like goats because, uh, right, that they're, they're surprised that they were found to be sheep within the parable. They're saying, when did we do those things? Meanwhile, the goats are confident that they're sheep. And in fact, it turns out that they're not. So I think what, what we should be doing with that kind of what I would call hortatort of language, the, the, the striking binaries that Jesus gives us in his preaching is they should call us to repentance and to self-introspection, not to being sure that we're on the right side of history and all those other guys from the outgroup are on the wrong side, but rather for each one of us to question ourselves and to say, am I a wheat or am I darnel? Am I a tear? Am I sheep or am I in fact a goat? And from that kind of humility is where we should each begin. So then, okay, so what if we start there then um, and say, okay, yeah, I, I want to seriously examine my heart, where I'm at, um, and let's say we, we examine it and it's like, okay, I, I love God. I want to follow him. I profess faith in him. Um, I believe that, you know, I'm, I'm living my life for Jesus. I'm doing what he has called me to do and making disciples of all nations and, and whatnot. And so now I want to go out and I want to reach people and I want to evangelize. Um, and I want to tell the lost, uh, their need to be saved. Um, I guess like, would that not, um, kind of create that like, or, or is it just, no, we just go out and kind of preach. Um, or are we making judgments or can we make that judgment and say, like, look, now that I have judged, right, myself and I've evaluated myself and have that humility, like, I want to look at you. And if you are living in unrepentant sin, I want to call you out of that. Can we can we make that kind of a judgment? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, but keep in mind that, that when Jesus says Second Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. That's not just a one-off. Um, it is something that you need to continually do, to continually test. You know, I, I like to say that um, 20, some 25 years ago, I got a scuba diving license, almost 30 years ago. Oh, I was I licensed scuba to scuba dive. Yeah, well, in, in my case, I haven't scuba dived since then. Um, oh. I did it for, as university credit back in 94, okay. so yeah, almost 28 years ago. But I would, I would not want to get in the water now because I haven't gone over stuff in 28 years, right? I would, I'd be dead. So and I, I don't think they would let you. <laughs> no, yeah, you should continually, you know, look at yourself. How are your scuba diving skills, right? As you know, when you, before you get in the water, uh, and it's the same thing with Christianity. So the testing is not a one-off. I've tested myself. Now I can go judge you. I right. should continually be testing myself. Having said that, sure, we make judgments all the time about where other people are at and whether we believe they're living consistently or inconsistently with the kingdom of God. I mean, one of the concerns, though, again, to, to go back to, to Childers and I think to a lot of the other critics like Winger and others, uh, is that when they talk about progressive Christians, I don't see or hear in the way they talk about them this kind of nuance. Um, and so when they say all of these people, these, this is another gospel, it's another religion. Uh, or when, when uh, Childers, in one of the most disturbing passages in her book, she describes progressive Christian pastors as like malicious wolves who want to eat the sheep. Uh, I know many people who would call themselves progressive who are pastors, and I've never met one of them that was maliciously trying to misrepresent the gospel. I think for the most part, what we end up finding when we talk to other people is when they disagree with us, it's not because they're evil. It's because they have different life experience and have assessed evidence differently. And so we have to be very careful about using moral categories to marginalize dissenting voices. Yeah. So um, 
I interviewed Elisa before the book ever came out. Um, and so uh, when I when I had the conversation with her, she talked about, uh, you know, a, a needing a clear definition of who she was talking about. And I think, as you kind of said, there's this broad spectrum of who kind of considers himself progressive. And, and I think of it maybe similar analogy in my mind, and as I like to think of analogies, is similar to kind of like the evolution debate uh, where. A Christian may be speaking against evolution, and what they mean by that is common descent, Darwinian evolution, kind of macroevolution. And then someone says, well, you know, I hold evolution, and here's an example of it, you know, mutating bacteria or something. And it's like, well, that's my microevolution. It's like, well, I'm not criticizing that. I'm criticizing this. And so there may be this broad term evolution that can mean change over time. It can mean common ancestry. Uh, and so we need to be careful about what exactly we're critiquing. And so in, in her, uh, in my conversation with her, again, before the book ever came out, was, um, you know, talking about the progressive Christian she was talking about was those who deny the core beliefs of Christianity. And she did mention the atonement. And and I know you've kind of critiqued this in your work of, of her saying it, this is um, uh, 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 penal substitutionary atonement. And that's not the only view that Christians have held. But at least in my conversation with her on my channel, uh, she says, uh, at least in the most simple sense, the fact that Jesus had to die for something, um, the, the fact that his death on the cross is, is important. And so um, if you're denying the fact that his death did something, um, then that would put you outside uh, the realm of what scripture teaches. Um, and so that, and then again, uh, denying the resurrection and um, also the Bible being God's word, where, where Paul is not you know, writing the inspired word of God, he's just writing his opinion. And I've, I've seen people on TikTok and, and places describing the Bible in this way as this is just men kind of making stuff up, trying to understand God, but they're not really accurate. And so it seems like to me in the critiques that I'm seeing of progressive Christianity, this is how they're defining it. And I guess I'm kind of curious of, based on that very narrow definition of those who are denying that Jesus' death did anything, um, denying the resurrection of Jesus, denying the Bible being the word of God, would would that be considered a, a, a false gospel? If you're saying we're not sinners, Jesus didn't have to die for us, you know, we can be good and kind of all roads get to heaven. Would that be considered a, a false gospel, a different religion? Well, good. Two things there. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily be a different religion. It could be heresy, right? Because um, if something is a different religion, then it's not a heresy of the Christian religion. And I think this is one of the confusions that she has by calling it a different religion. Um, there, there is a George Yancey's book, which is another issue, a, a sociological treatment where he tries to, to argue uh, that he's co-author, I forget the other co-author, but but they try to argue that uh, progressive Christians and evangelical Christians should now be considered different religions. But keep in mind that if you do take that view, then if something is a different religion, it's no longer a heresy of the other religion. So Mormonism, I think, is a new religion. It's a different religion. I wouldn't call it a Christian heresy in that sense. Uh, now, there can be some blurring, but but you should keep we should keep that distinction in mind. Now, I've already given an example of something that I think does fall under that label. I've, I've given an example of progressivechristianity.org, which is John Shelby Spong's website, or, or people, his followers, his acolytes maintain that website, and they've maintained views of Jesus that I think are fundamentally inconsistent with Christianity. One of the problems with Childers is she name drops and, and critiques multiple Christians who I think are fully orthodox, like Rachel Held Evans, like Brian Zond, like Pete Enns. Those are all people that do affirm the centrality of the incarnation, the resurrection, uh, the nature of author and authority of scripture. They may disagree with her on the theory of atonement or the nature of biblical inspiration, but those are not issues that place you in or outside the kingdom. And so I think it's very malicious that when she name drops those people, 
and essentially says they're they're part of this new religion of progressive Christianity. I think it's just flatly false. So a question came in. I think it kind of relates to what I'm asking here is um, from Jared. Let me pull it up here. Uh, they're saying, um, how would you then define a false gospel? So if, if you don't think that progressive Christianity is a false gospel, what would be the definition of a gospel that someone is proclaiming that would be false? Well, we've already acknowledged progressive Christianity, just like evangelical Christianity, is very diverse. There are false gospels that are associated with both. I already, I mean, I said word of faith theology, I think is a false gospel, and yet right. it's under the evangelical umbrella. If we were to call something a false gospel, I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward what that would mean. Uh, the gospel is the euangelion, the good news of Christ. And so a false gospel would be something that gets that really fundamentally wrong. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I, I agree with that the fundamental thing wrong. And so, um, um, so coming back to kind of what you talk about here, uh, we, we kind of got a little bit into the relativism uh, camp, because I think that one thing that Christians are, are, you know, that I hear the critique from an evangelical framework, right? Critiquing those who consider themselves progressive is, is this idea of relativism and the denial of truth. And so uh, you, you wrote here in your book, and I'm trying to find the exact quote. I have it in my notes, but I'm not seeing the quote uh, in my book. But this idea of it's not denying truth, but that it's denying that we ever access the truth apart from our limited perspectives. Um, and so uh, what does it look like, I guess, to, to try to interpret Scripture? to figure out what scripture is objectively saying is true, but doing so within our limited perspective? Well, first of all, it would, it would be a matter of coming to recognize that uh, the vast majority of, of us are reading scripture through translation, right? The fact that if you're reading through the ESV or the message or the NIV or the NASB or the Living Bible or the Good News Bible or some other translation in English or another language, is that you are already reading through the interpretations of another individual or an interpretation translation team, I should say. Uh, and so uh, there is no translation who, that's perfect. There's this old rabbinic saying that he who translates, I think, is, um, is a liar. He who paraphrases is a blasphemer. The point being that there's no perfect translation between languages. Translation is always a compromise. And so one way to begin to address that is to read multiple translations, particularly when you want to do serious study and recognize that those translations will provide you with different angles of interpretation on the passage. The next thing is to recognize that there's a difference uh, between the cultural space in which we live as 21st century North American readers and you know the writers and the, the people who populate the narratives of the New and Old Testaments. And so there are all sorts of assumptions that we may have that we think are common sense that they may not share. And one way you begin to become aware of that is by beginning to take a look at commentaries, et cetera. Uh, and so that would just be another thing. Another thing is to, to recognize historical biblical criticism, textual criticism, how you begin to come about on, on the, uh, the texts that form our Bible today, because we don't have the autographa, the original writings for any of the books that comprise the Bible. It doesn't mean that we can't have a fair degree of confidence as to what the original form was, but we just need to begin to recognize that God didn't drop it down from heaven in the way that Muslims <laughs> say the Quran was allegedly dropped down from heaven. Right. And so there are fingerprints on the Bible. And that should not be viewed as a bug, I would submit, but rather a feature. 
So yeah, and I, I I like that, and I and I unfortunately I had to skip this chapter because of time, and I, I read the title, and I was like, I think I would agree with you, and so I'm gonna move on to you know, uh, but I like at least the title, and I'm curious to hear kind of you flesh it out a little bit of this idea that that inspiration does not. Uh, now I'm forgetting the exact name of the title. Uh, Biblical inspiration does not extend to interpretation. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, I I, I think I think it's pretty straightforward, but. Uh, we yeah. always need to be careful that that uh, when when we read the text, the fact that somebody denies our interpretation of the text, even if we think our interpretation just obvious and common sense, it doesn't follow that they're rejecting the text right. or rejecting the authority of the text. I mean, when I grew up, I was raised young earth creationist, and uh, whatever you think of young earth creationism, I will say this: then I was raised with the view that it is just obvious and common sense that God created the world in six literal twenty-four hour periods. Right. And anybody who denies that is obfuscating their intentionally, apparently avoiding the obvious plain meaning of the text. I came to recognize that it's a much more complicated than that. And that is just, I think, a general lesson to keep in mind whenever we come to scripture is our interpretation can be wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that. And I couldn't agree more because I am an old earth creationist and I frequently have young earth creationists telling me like, you're just denying scripture. And I'm like, no, I'm not denying scripture. I'm denying your interpretation of scripture. And it's interesting because the same thing that we're kind of talking about is that they then will often come back and say, oh, so you just think everything is an interpretation and that no interpretation is right and everything is relativistic. And it's like, no, I, I think that there's an objective meaning of the text that we need to figure out how to get back to. I just think that your interpretation of it is not what the text actually is communicating. And so uh, I love that point and I, and I completely agree there. And so um, kind of following from that, then I think there's another big point of your book uh, about this idea of, um, as we talked about a little bit, this kind of the epistemic humility, uh, the, that's the difference between like a, a certainty and, and doubt. And so kind of what would you um, maybe, I, I think this is one place where people kind of uh, critique uh, some of those in the progressive camp. And I've seen lots of videos, like I said, on TikTok, where we're kind of really pushing this idea, like you can't know anything for certain, like to claim certainty is wrong. Um, and we need to be so humble that we need to be like, I don't know. And we have to be in this place of agnosticism. Um, kind of how would you kind of flush out those differences? Well, when we talk about certainty, the first thing we have to keep in mind is that there is often a conflation going on here between two different things. The first thing is psychological certitude, which is just a psychological condition, meaning I, I have no doubts about the thing that I believe. The other thing that we want to keep in mind is epistemic certainty, meaning I, you know, I could not be wrong about this. It is impossible that I could be wrong about this. You could have psychological certitude uh, and in other words, have no doubts and yet be wrong about something. And so we have to keep that distinction in mind. Now, I grew up in an evangelical tradition in which doubt was stigmatized. So um, expressing doubts or questions was often, uh, there was a, a pall of suspicion put upon it. In fact, my one of my pastors preached this past Sunday, and she talked about um, how when she was growing up in church, she was told that Moses wrote Deuteronomy. And then like many people, she realized at the end of Deuteronomy, it narrates the death of Moses. And she's like, yeah, how do I explain this to the Sunday school teacher? And her question was censured. It was condemned by saying, well, you shouldn't ask such things. You should just trust or something, which is never a good response to doubt. Um, and so what I see many progressives doing is sort of reacting to the historic suspicion of doubt, which I think is not helpful for a healthy developing Christian faith, which inevitably will, not inevitably, but typically will have some kind of doubt. 
I think sometimes progressives have gone the opposite extreme uh, in their in their rhetoric, where they kind of they'll they'll talk about doubt almost as if it sounds like it's an end in itself. Pete Enns, uh, he wrote a book called The Sin of Certainty. Now, um, if you actually look at the book, I don't think he's saying certainty is literally a sin. I think that's the kind of overselling you get in book titles sometimes just to get the attract the interest of a reader. Yeah. What he is trying to do is to say that there should be room for doubt, which I think I agree with hundred percent. We do have to be careful about stigmatizing certainty or psychological certitude. However, some people don't have doubts. It's, and we shouldn't blame them if they don't. My dad lived his whole life and he never had any doubts. Uh, well, until he had Alzheimer's disease and then he began to have doubts, but up until that point, he never did. Um, and so just as I don't think we should stigmatize people who lack or who have doubts, we shouldn't stigmatize people who lack them. We should recognize Christian community is served by both groups. Yeah. So I, I, I think this kind of relates to uh, one of the, the points in your book of, of this idea of like levels of certainty or degrees of certainty, right? And talking about the, the pastor of Elisa Childers, you know, saying he's only 60% certain. And I, and I presented this to a few friends and I just said, hey, uh, would this bother you? Uh, if your pastor came out and said, I'm not sure, I'm only 60% sure that this is true. Uh, and then how, and then the same question that you asked in your book, how, how certain then do you have to be? Do you think we can have hundred percent certainty? And they said, no. Okay. Then what percentage, right? Does it have to be? And I think, um, I, I'm curious kind of what you would take or what, how you would kind of see my perspective is that I would say, um, I don't, I don't think the percentages is helpful. Um, because I, I, I don't know how to put my percentage on how certain I am of things. I don't know if you can put a percentage on that too. Like, I don't know what the standard is for percentages. Would you say the same thing? Yeah, I, I don't interpret that language literally. Uh, what, the yeah. way I would interpret it is when people say, I, I have 60% certainty or conviction. <laughs> I think that's a way of saying I have some questions or doubts. Yeah, and uh, that's where and, I like... And, yeah. Yeah. And so that's what I, I like. I would kind of say like in the same thing, like when it comes to like my views of eschatology, you know, so to speak, it's like, man, I, I kind of fall in this camp. Uh, I lean a little bit more there, but I could be easily persuaded out of it. And so maybe I'm 55 percent sure. I don't know. Um, but I think that there's a difference, at least in my mind, uh, of a pastor saying, look, I believe this to be true. And, I, and I've had conversations with these pastors where they said, look, um, I, I have so many doubts. One pastor said that I can't preach with confidence and I can't say like, I, I truly believe this because I have so many doubts, uh, but he continued to preach and he continued to profess what was true. Um, I think there's a difference between that and maybe what I see again, like I've seen on TikTok from some progressive Christians, self-proclaimed progressive Christians that say, um, not just, I believe this and I think this is true, but I have questions, but actually saying like, I don't know. And, and more claiming an agnosticism. And so I, I would say I see a difference between a pastor who says, I don't know if God exists. I don't know if the Bible's true. I don't know if Christianity is true. I don't know if Jesus rose from the dead, but I'm going to preach it versus one that says, look, I believe kind of as scripture. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. I believe, but but I have questions that I'm trying to work through. Uh, would you see a difference between having some doubts and not being confident uh, versus actually having a more state of agnosticism of, of I don't know? Well, I, I think that that uh, this is another place where I'd want to push back a little bit at a binary of thinking it's either or. I think that there's just a continuum here that, you know, and this is one of those issues about how conversion or deconversion or construction or deconstruction is complicated. At some point, a person may say, you know what, I can't preach in good confidence, in, in good conscience anymore and just mount, mount up to the pulpit and proclaim the things I once proclaimed. Another person can can do it, and uh, even though they have significant struggles and questions and so on, so it, it seems to me that it's it's kind of like when do you stop believing is is just not an uh, not an easy question to answer, 
And so I would just want to remove the stigma from it. Now, I know that you know, there's a lot of things get posted on TikTok, and I would not want people to form all their views about progressives on TikTok any more than I would for evangelicals. I think one of the things that I think we have to keep in mind is that often people, it's, it's again, it's, it's like when Jesus used his provocative binary language to make a hortatorical point. I, I, I like to, to point out, for example, when he says, you know, wide is the road to destruction and many find it, you know, narrow is the road to life and few find it. And many people have kind of reasoned from that, that we have a prediction about the ratio of saved to lost in eternity. I think that's way over reading what Jesus is doing there. And instead what he's doing is he's just giving us again, a kick in the pants in terms of, of get right with God uh, rather than giving us a prophecy about the future. And I think I want to be cautious again, when it comes to TikTok and other things, many people, they might be trying to do something like that, maybe somewhat in a ham-fisted way at times, but they're trying to react against something, get you to think in a different way. They're not giving you a systematic theology. Yeah. And I would, and that's, man, I, I don't spend a ton of time on there because it's just so bad. And the arguments are terrible, but at the same time, that's kind of why I jumped on is I saw bad Christians making really bad arguments. I saw our bad arguments against Christians. I saw a lot of stuff and it's just like, man, it's hard. But I think that's where like, I, I have become passionate about this is that I'm a high, as a high school teacher, a lot of my students are on TikTok. Most of them are, and, and they're getting this information and they're listening to people uh, claiming these different things. And it's like, all right, we, we need to think about what is being said here. Uh, even though it is not uh, most of which is is been clearly explained away or debunked or something by basic scholars <laughs> in different areas. Um, it, it's something that we still need to kind of talk through and help them think through. Um, and so with that, I guess um, when I, I think this was mainly briefly discussed at the beginning and, and I, I like how conversations go like this. And I think the problem is, is I, I normally don't have very many notes on conversations. Um, and so just, I am able to just go with the flow, but there was a lot of questions I wanted to ask you, uh, based on your book. And so now I'm trying to go back and figure out what do we, what do we talk about and what have we not? Um, but when we talk about, um, a, a, a person moving away from evangelical Christianity to progressive Christianity, um, what would you say maybe are the things that they are giving up? And I think that's kind of come across in many different ways and the things we've discussed, but just to maybe be clear for those listening, like what would someone be giving up to say, I no longer want to identify as this, I'm now switching over to this. Well, I find this enormously difficult as a question. For one thing, these terms have different implicature or meaning in different contexts. There are contexts in which I will call myself an evangelical Christian, and there are contexts in which I won't. For example, if people are automatically going to make an association that I'm probably a Republican who supports Donald Trump, I'm not in that context going to call myself an evangelical. So uh, one of the issues then is it's complicated as to when you use a particular term. Now, what a person gives up by calling themselves a progressive, it could be that they give up something very important. Let's say that they become... Uh, like John Shelby Spong's kind of progressive and they deny the incarnation, then they've given up something essential. However, they may be giving up baggage from evangelicalism that wasn't helpful. For example, maybe they they give up a narrow view of salvation as only the, the, the saving of souls and understand that God's program is for the redemption of creation. Uh, and that's part of what it means for them to become a progressive. Well, then they've, I think, given up something limiting and actually adopted a fuller understanding of the gospel. And so it just all depends on the person. So with that, as we are running out of time, um, if someone is going to uh, critique uh, a, a 
a person who claims to be progressive, uh, who identifies that way, uh, and who maybe rejects the, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the Bible being the word of God, uh, how would we go about saying like, look, these are false ideas, or how can we go about critiquing that? If, if it's say, well, progressive Christians teach, and if it's like, well, that label doesn't work, uh, what would you suggest is a label that should be used or what sort of language that we can use to be able to say, look, here are people uh, who are rejecting core central doctrines, like don't fall captive to these ideas. I'm, this is again, a huge question. A couple of things very quickly. Uh, one is that I think, first of all, typically, again, when people call themselves progressive, it's probably because they've come out of an evangelical background. And the best thing you can do, I think for starters, is to begin to understand a little bit of their narrative and their journey because then you can understand what they're rejecting and what they're perhaps reacting against. And you could talk about that, right? Same thing when people become an atheist, they leave Christianity behind. Well, what's their story? I, I think we should have a curiosity about that. And, and before maybe you get to debating theology, hear the narrative. Uh, the second thing I would wanna say is we have to be very careful about prejudging because there's a lot of misunderstanding that goes on. For yeah. example, there are, there are many people who call themselves progressive and they adopt a nuanced inclusivist theology of salvation, which where they understand Christ can be working salvifically through other religions. And I don't have time to explain this further here, except to know that this is a view that's been explicitly endorsed by the Catholic church since Vatican II. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about it favorably at the end of the last battle. So um, when they begin to talk in those terms, people can say, oh, you're a pluralist. You believe there are many roads to the top of the mountain. But in fact, what they may be endorsing is that there is one road to the top of the mountain. There's Jesus, uh, John 14, 6. But Jesus salvifically meets people in a variety of ways and perhaps in other religious traditions. Now, even if that view is wrong, it's not pluralism. And so we want to be very careful about labeling people, labeling people and prejudging them when we don't yet understand what they exactly are endorsing. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that is um, hopefully what we are all doing, right, is, is having that conversation and and truly learning, right, what people believe, asking those questions, looking at why the reasons are for the beliefs that they have in order to have that dialogue. And, and rather than, again, I think that's one big thing you talk about here in the book and, and I think is important of, and not this prejudging, oh, you're part of X group and just exclude the person uh, versus trying to figure out like, okay, what exactly do you believe and try to get to know the person, right? We are I think we, we want to talk to people and not just uh, and, and be able to have tolerance for people that we disagree with and treat them with dignity and respect. And I just had this conversation, at a, a conference I spoke at recently where it's like, look, if, if you want them to listen to you and what you have to say about Jesus, like why we need to be willing to listen to them. Like it's, it seems like a very simple um, equation, but sometimes it is so very difficult. So, um, well, Randall, I just I appreciate this time uh, for you to come on, have this conversation and um, and and be willing to kind of spell out some of these things. I think it is so helpful to kind of understand uh, this this position of say, like, look, I, I think we agree on a lot. Right. Where it's like, how are we humble? Right. Uh, and how are we trying to understand, look, where we are coming from? How are we reading scripture um, and trying to make sure we get this right? Um, and I think that we can definitely uh, stand on that side and, and agree on those points. So uh, thank you so much. And I know there's more work that you are doing. I've, I've attached your website in different places below. Um, anything else you want to kind of say to kind of leave us with uh, as far as what you are doing and, and moving forward or, or kind of on this topic? Um, I, I think a good place to end is with the First Corinthians 13, the primacy of love in all things. I mean, you could have the most orthodox evangelical theology of anybody, but if you do not have love for your neighbor, you are as a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal.
Yeah. And I think, and I guess that was one point that I wanted to bring up. And I think that's a good point of like, how is it that our, if our beliefs are not leading to, right, as sometimes people say, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. If our, if our beliefs on who Jesus is and how he has called us to be is not leading to us being loving, compassionate people, then we are not truly allowing, I think, Jesus to shape us and transform us. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. All right, let me jump in here really quick. Exit. All right, guys, thank you so much. Uh, again, I hope this conversation uh, has helped you think more clearly about this issue. I hope that, you know, as you saw us dialoguing, I hope that you can see uh, we're trying to figure out what does scripture say? How do we respond well? How do we love people well? And we need to be able to sit down and have that conversation with them. Uh, shows coming up. If you are interested in continuing to follow, follow what I am doing here with Think Well in this show on YouTube, uh, next week, Daryl Bach is coming on to talk about his book, Cultural Intelligence and Creating a Theology of cultural engagement on Tuesday and then Thursday, Alex McFarlane coming on to talk about some of the big questions that students have and how do we respond to those questions. So those are some interviews coming up next week that you can be looking forward to as well as there's other things that you can check out here. If you've enjoyed this, share it, like it, subscribe, uh, send it to people and help spread the word of what uh, is happening here. But again, thank you so much. Hopefully we have challenged you to think well on this topic and continue thinking about God, Jesus and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. Bye, everybody. Have a blessed rest of your day. I just ask you leave. Won't hesitate to follow.